the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history and Welcome to another episode of Sake on Air. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular co-hosts here on the show that brings you a new dialogue within the fascinating world of sake and shochu. And this week we have assembled nearly the entire cast for something a bit different from our usual programming. On November 25th, we got nearly the entire cast of Sake on Air together at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center here in Tokyo for a special live recording to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the show. The purpose of this little event was threefold, actually. The first is that, even though a majority of our listeners are located outside of Japan, we wanted to create an opportunity where we could interface with the people that have been here supporting and championing us here in Japan. By doing so, I think it really helped to demonstrate to a lot of people just what it is that listeners such as yourself uh, appreciate and value about what it is we're trying to do here at Sake on Air. The second is that we wanted to communicate directly with some of our supporters. Being a primarily, di- di- being a primarily digital form of media, it's actually really motivating and encouraging to be able to have that sort of direct face-to-face communication with our listeners. Celebrating one year of the show felt like a really great opportunity to help make that happen. And third, we wanted to try streaming the show, which we did. And we wanted to see if there were listeners out around the globe that were able and willing to tune in along with us during the time that we'd normally be recording episodes of the show. The support and response that we got through this little experiment was really overwhelming. I can tell you that we will definitely be considering how we can further use streaming in more of our content creation and to help further connect us with our listeners in the coming year. For those that weren't able to follow along with us live, you can check out the video uh, that is preserved on our Facebook page as well, and we'll go ahead and put a link to that in the show notes. If you're just tuning into the show for the first time, this episode may seem a little bit odd, but it should also provide a bit of interesting insight into the nature of the show as well. That being said, I do recommend checking out some of our past shows, as those will likely give you a little bit better idea as to the nature of what we do here at Sake on Air. And lastly, before we jump in, for those of you that have been following along with the show over the past year and have yet to write a brief review of the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service that you use, if you might be able to take just three minutes or so out of your day uh, in order to write a short review, it would really mean a lot to everyone here. Aside from word of mouth, believe it or not, just writing a review is actually one of the best and most effective ways of helping to get word out about the show so that it can reach a larger audience. If you feel like you've benefited from what we've been doing here at the show over the last year uh, during any of your time with us, chances are there are a few more people out out there just like yourself. So if you'd be able to take just a brief moment uh, in order to help us out and write a short review, really, it would mean the world to us. All right, that's enough for me. So with that, let's get on with the show. I think we're actually going to start this thing. Sabarashi. Excellent. Thank you so much again so for coming out for everybody. Everybody, Sorry for being just a few minutes uh, late to get started here. Um, thank you so much for coming out tonight. I know how incredibly busy everyone is, um, and I know I, a lot of you were contacted at the last minute. I know that because I was the one contacting a lot of you. Um, so thank you so much um, for taking the time to come out. Um, and welcome to... <laughs> We've never done something like this before on Sake on Air. This is something um, entirely new. Um, and I want, I want to 
it's been just over one year uh, since we started doing this show. Uh, we started last October, and we decided because all of our audience, 99.9% of our, our listener base is really uh, scattered throughout the globe, we decided that we wanted to try and connect the people that are here that have been championing in the show, the people that care about the show, the people who have expressed interest in the show, and spend a little time with them while at the same time um, sharing the show um, with our listeners. So if you hadn't noticed, um, we are live streaming and we are also um, recording. So this will go on air um, at a later date. We'll fix up a little bit as well too. So as we get started here, um, if we could get just one really big compai, that would be amazing. I would love a nice loud compai with about 30 people on mic right about now. That would start the evening off beautifully. Everybody got something to drink? Okay, All right, on the count of three, if we can get one big compai, that would be wonderful. One, two, and three. Compai! Wonderful. Look at that. Cheers. Cheers. Eye contact. Mm. Eye contact, perfect. <laughs> we are in a position to educate here. We have to do this properly. So again, thank you so much for coming out this evening. Um, this evening, we're celebrating one year of Sake On Air, the world's first and because of that only uh, podcast dedicated to the world of Sake and Shochu. Uh, my name is Justin Potts. I am one of your uh, hosts here on the show. Um, I'm going to go down and, and want to introduce everybody here. But before we get started, I want to take a moment to introduce Mr. Imada, over at that end of the bar. Imada-san, wave, please. Um, if you want to maybe lean into Chris's mic there and just yep. tell everybody real quick just about the space, because it's because of Imada-san and because of all of his support and allowing us to do all kinds of crazy things um, that we're able to use this space and do this show. So if you just want to tell everybody just real quick about where we're at okay. here. Uh, this place is called Information Center of JSS, uh, which is supposed to be the gateway of the sake and shochu for the people outside of Japan. And this place has been open about three years ago. And when it opens three years ago, th there has been only about one or two foreigners coming to this place. But these days, it's, it's about like today, there have been more than 30, pe 30 people from overseas coming. So. After all, like for for a year, there's going to be like three thousand or four thousand uh, foreign people coming to this place. So it's a very nice place to to for, for the foreign people to learn about sake and shochu. So that's why sake on air recorded here and uh, sending information from this place is very meaningful for us. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And so if you come here, you can, you can meet Imada-san here every day between the hours of 10 and, and 6 p.m. <laughs> on the weekdays. <laughs> so if you ever want to come say hi to this gentleman, he's easy to track down. So real quick, just going to explain kind of what this evening is going to look like. Um, as I said, we want to sort of, one, um, demonstrate to you what this show looks like a little bit, what it is we're doing and why it is we're doing it. Um, and we also want to sort of share the experience with our listeners, both those that are over overseas as well as all of you that are in here. Um, so what we're going to do is um, we're just going to introduce ourselves here. We're going to explain just a little bit about what the show is um, for those of you who maybe aren't super familiar and sort of why it is we're doing it. Um, 
and then um, we're going to to sort of let you know the types of questions, the type of interest that people have. We're going to read off a couple of questions that we got off from listeners. We asked for questions. Um, if anybody has questions that they would like to ask um, the host here on the show, we'll read a few of those off. Then we'll probably dive into sort of a mini discussion. Um, the show, we do a lot of pretty in-depth discussions on a lot of sake-related topics um, to give you an idea as to what that looks like. We picked a short topic, and so we're going to do kind of a kind of a lightning kind of a lightning round about ten minutes into a into a single topic, and then we're going to open up the questions to everybody here. Um, questions that can be about sake or shochu related. Um, it can be about the space. It can be about the show, whatever you're interested in. So, And hopefully we're going to do that within the next 40 minutes or so because I, I know why everybody's actually here. You're actually here for the party because there's pl plenty more beverages. So um, we'll try to shift to that as quickly as we can. So introductions. Let's go, let's go down the line here real quick and we'll start down at the, uh, the far end of the bar. Who do we have down there? Chris, Chris Hughes, or uh, Chris, call me Chris. Uh, I'm very tall. <laughs> Which you can't see on radio. No, you can't. Um, and anyone interested, it's 197 centimeters. If you're wondering how tall. Um, I always get asked, is it two meters? And I have to politely say no. So, well, my story began uh, back in, not in Japan, actually, which might surprise you. Uh, I had never discovered sake in uh, Japan before, but I discovered sake in London. My first job after uh, graduating from university, where I studied Japanese, was working for an importer. I worked for about four years for this importer, met a lot of sake breweries, fell in love with sake, was in, wooed into sake by a really charismatic sake brewery. The rest is history, as they say. Um, I now teach uh, here in Tokyo, uh, WSCT, the Wine Spirits Education Trust, uh, sake course. Um, we started in 2017, and uh, we're now into our fifth or sixth uh, semester. I lose count. Um, and then, yeah, I'm delighted to be on the podcast talking about sake. We've been doing this for a year. We have. Believe it or not. It feels like just yesterday, which right? is a great, crazy. It's a great thing. Yeah, it is. Fast. Excellent. Thank and you. Moving right down the line. Hi, I'm Rebecca Wilson. I'm not quite as tall as Chris. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm, well, I've been in Japan for 15 years, and... I was actually at my welcoming party where I um, had the fortune of pass, um, crossing paths with an amazing sake that changed my life and set me on the path of sake discovery, a wonderful journey that I'm still on. So fast forward to now, um, I am very privileged and humbled to be able to work every day in the sake industry as a uh, sake consultant for Japan Craft Sake Company. Um, my my job, is, my job portfolio is fairly diverse, um, I, as well as helping to organize Craft Sake Week in Nopongi Hills, which happens once a year, now Japan's largest sake culture um, event. Um, I also am in charge of developing an international export system, um, minus five degree to end consumer quality assurance system, um, which is very exciting and very challenging. Um, lots, of, lots of hats in my job portfolio, but Ultimately, I'm very, very grateful to be able to um, work in this industry, in this generation, um, where we're experiencing such an incredible shift, and maybe even I'd call it a sake renaissance. Um, and I'm very, very, very fortunate to be um, active and productive in the sake industry, and I very much am looking forward to using sake on air as a way to share some of the experiences that we're having here in Japan with the more global and diverse audience. Perfect, thank you. Christopher. Uh, Christopher Pellegrini at your service. I'm the, the token shochu geek 
And uh, so I geek out about shochu and aomori in Japan's indigenous spirits on the show. Um, actually, Chris, big Chris, I'm little Chris. I'm standing, this is the first time I've been taller than him in my entire life. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so I'm 182 centimeters, so you can see how tall he actually is. Um, so on the show, I'm known as little Chris. And uh, he was actually my teacher at WSET, so he's yeah. my sensei uh, for learning about Nihonshu. And uh, big lover of, of all things Japan and Japanese drinks. But uh, if you have any questions today about Japan's lesser known drinks, being which are shochu and aomori, then please see me after we are done with this little uh, confab. Thank you. They can see you after class. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Moving on down the line. Marie, hey. Hi, guys. I'm Marie Nagata. Um, I'm quite new to the sake world, unlike the rest of the crew here. Um, I dropped out of a corporate life working around the clock here in Tokyo a couple of years ago, which led me down the path to becoming a sake brewer in New Zealand, of all places. <laughs> right now, I'm back in Tokyo based here. Um, I run a one-girl operation of providing marketing support to breweries and other sake-related media. Um, I write, talk, and also sip, a lot of sipping, in the name of promoting sake. Um, and yeah, it's been a great pleasure being here. I'm a rather a Padawan, but um, learning my way through the sake world and what it has to offer. Great, thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. My name is Sébastien Lemoine, and I'm from France. Um, my relationship with Japan is quite long because I, I came here in 1987 for the first time. Um, but actually, I stayed away from sake for many, many, many years. And um, as you can hear in the introduction part of each show, what really brought me into the world of sake is the people of sake. Is as I was traveling through the country, uh, visiting breweries, is how um, is this and these encounters where with people who are both very proud about their heritage and the tradition they've been carrying, and very humble and and welcoming um, for people like like me who just had a curiosity about, uh, a curious interest about what they were producing. Um, at that time in life, I was a banker, and I was a banker for about 23 years until I changed my career um, about six years ago now. And today I run a, a very small company, modest company, which is involved in sake education um, at Le Cordon Bleu and um, Temple University. Um, as well as producing events for corporates or, um, or travelers to Japan and doing some consulting as well. And Sake on Air has been real, real fun uh, since the beginning, I must say. And my name is Justin. Sorry for those that are tucked away in the corner there. I'm hiding behind this big sign here. My name is Justin Potts. Um, I have been in Japan probably close to 15 years or so. Uh, my involvement in sake came actually through working um, a lot of my work in the past has actually been through rural development, a lot of it through agriculture, and sort of um, trying to figure out ways to recommunicate and revalue um, traditional products um, that are still exist in the rural areas of Japan but are undervalued and underappreciated here. Um, and so that was sort of where I first discovered sake. Um, in doing that, I discovered koji, which actually which absolutely blew my mind. Um, and I figured out, and I started going, my gosh, why does nobody know everything all about this? Why isn't this taking over the world yet? How should I, how, what is the best way I can communicate this to people? The most efficient way seemed sake. I started going down the sake path. Since then, I've spent a number of years brewing uh, at a few places. I work on a lot of education, uh, tourism-related 
things. Um, we can talk more about that later. I, I round out the team. Um, and I should note that um, we do have one team member who cannot um, join us here this evening. Um, you'll see he's not here. So this is everybody who's here this evening. Sorry, that's over on the left. Mm -hmm. you over there. You know, this, uh, Mr. John Gautner is also a part of the team here as well. Um, but um, for those who don't, he spends about half of his time in the US. So actually trying to get everybody in the same room at the same time Somehow we managed to convince all of the busiest people in the world to come in the same room at the same time to try and work on this together. Um, and this is almost never, ever happens. So sadly, John um, cannot be with us tonight, um, but he is with us uh, in spirit. Last but definitely not least, um, someone who is far underappreciated, who is hiding in the corner back here, um, not because he's trying to hide, but just sort of by default. Um, I'd like to introduce Frank Walter. So if anybody listens to Saki on Wear, it's because of this individual. They, they get a so I'm Frank, I do all of the editing, and I w my company works on the website, and I just do kind of all of the background stuff to make these guys sound good, I suppose. Yes. yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. Yeah. Magician. Eventually, eventually, having listened to each episode three or four times, going through it very slowly, eventually I should be able to replace all of them <laughs> as a goal at one point, but we're still a long ways away from that, so I'm going to go hide in my corner again. But yeah. Thank you so much. Now we all know we have to protect our jobs yes. from Frank. Yeah. yeah. Again, thank you so much for coming out, everybody. Just out of curiosity, how many people listen to podcasts on any sort of regular basis? Any podcast listeners? A little bit? Not, not everybody? Many. Not a whole lot? We got a few hands going up. So for folks who aren't familiar, so podcasts in Japan haven't really taken hold the same way they have uh, in North America and the U.S. In Japan, a lot of sort of podcasts are kind of, it's kind of a lot of rehashed radio um, in a lot of ways, um, and it's not necessarily something that is crafted, crafted for the medium, um, whereas in the U.S. it has really taken off, especially in the last four or five years or so, um, to the point where now about roughly 25% of the U.S. population are avid podcast listeners. They subscribe to five to six um, podcasts and they listen to them. Um, for those of you who listen to the show, our shows are generally about an hour in length. An interesting thing about podcasts is it doesn't seem to matter. Um, not just with our show, but just about any show. Uh, in an era uh, where nobody has any time and nobody can uh, make any more than two minutes to watch a video on YouTube or they can't stop for a picture for more than 1.8 seconds or whatever when they're scrolling. For some reason, um, when it comes to podcasts, people are finding ways to integrate them into their lives, um, whether they're 30 minutes, 40 minutes, or an hour, and they're sitting down with them, and they're really um, finding ways to take in the information that's being, that's being put out there. And so it's really turned, it's become a really amazing and very open platform um, for sharing all different kinds of information. That seemed like just a really fantastic way to start sharing sake. And talking about sake, so here is, if you look over there, that was our recording of our very first episode. Our first episode aired on October 18th, um, 2018. There's um, Chris and Sebastian and John uh, getting into it. Um, in case you didn't notice, we are not radio people. Aside from Frank back here, for the most part, we have a couple of us have dabbled a little bit um, in the past, in our past lives. Um, but w when it comes to figuring out radio and podcasting, we started from scratch. The opportunity came up. It seemed like an amazing one, um, and we jumped on it, um, and luckily, and we are here, and we are now um, putting out shows roughly about an hour in length, uh, twice a month, about every other week, um, and so now we are up to just about, we're going to be releasing our 30th show. Um, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there, little by little here. So with, with Sake on Air, um, one of the reasons we really wanted to sort of share this with you is because all of our listeners, our target audience, in a sense, 
is not necessarily the people in this room. Um, we're trying to target the all the other people in all the other countries around the world who don't necessarily have access to sake and all of the resources and all of the information um, and all of the products um, that are always readily available. Um, the really fantastic thing is that there are a lot of amazing people doing incredible work all over the world in education, in promotion, um, at all different levels. And the quality of information, the amount of information, and the avenues that people can utilize in order to learn more about sake are growing all the time and it's becoming more and more accessible. That being said, it's still very much an educational setting. And nowadays, is the information travels so much faster. And people's awareness, not just around sake, but just food and beverage in general, um, the questions that people have and their awareness around these things, they're asking a lot of interesting questions. And even if they don't understand sake, a lot of people are really developing um, an index um, through which they can explore sake and start and understand it on their own terms. So after you've gone and learned about sake, where does that dialogue continue? Um, there's a place for people to learn, but there aren't a lot of places where a dialogue can really be shared and people can really sit in in that room. For all of us, I know being here in Japan, not just speaking with Japanese people, but people coming from overseas, whether they be chefs or distributors or whatnot who are coming in here, there's small pockets of people get together for drinks or for dinner all the time that are having amazing converse conversations about what sake is now and what the future of sake could look like. And that seemed like something really valuable to share with a world of people that are actively interested nowadays um, and are in a position to do that. And so one, the main goal is we really wanted to open up the dialogue instead surrounding Japan's um, iconic beverages, um, sake and shochu and awamori. You know, awamori, just because it's too long, we tend to, it, we don't say it. I feel bad for awamori. So we do have a, book, a bottle here, right? Yeah, Tonight's yeah, outside, yeah. we're good. Yeah. So, all right, I will, I'll walk around with the awamori later because I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate. Um, and then also, provide a global voice to the people that um, have shaped these celebrated beverages in Japan and the tradition um, that comes with them. Um, out of the roughly 1,300 producers um, that are here in Japan, um, a lot of them don't necessarily have a voice internationally, or at least not a super strong one. Our job is not to be the authority. Our position is to be the conduit for those people. Um, we just happen to be a group of people who are in a very lucky position to where we have access to the people who have been doing this for decades, centuries, um, at all different levels and facets of the industry. So when people do have questions, when people do have something to know, there's no way we have all the answers, but together with Imara-san and JSS and with their support and everybody here, we have access to that information. And so to be able to get that information, share that on a regular basis and add that to the, di the dialogue that's out there and make it available to people, um, is something that we really want to um, really be able to contribute to. And so in all of our content, we feel like it will be evergreen. I mean, it will be content that will be of value and will be interesting five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And it will hopefully become kind of a snapshot of what this really revolutionary period of the sake and sochu industries look like um, down the road. Um, any, anybody, anything to add? Any thoughts, feelings? Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so right now, Sake on Air, um, we have regular listeners in over 50 countries around the world. Um, we have listeners in more countries than that, but about that many, we have at least regular listeners. That being said, most of our listeners, about half of them are in the US. Um, and then after that, there's a big chunk of listeners in Japan. And then after that, there's a lot of the countries throughout Europe. It tends to be the UK, Canada, Australia tend to rank really, really high. And then in Europe, um, Italy, France, Germany, they tend to juggle back and forth. Hong Kong, Taiwan, we have a, a 
pretty strong listener base and it's growing all the time. Um, for better or worse, we've done close to li no promotion for this show over the last year aside from um, putting it out into the world and um, baseline social media activity. Um, and we're getting two to 3,000 downloads a month on average right now, starting from I remember when we launched our first one, it was you know a couple hundred, um, which is super exciting. It's been growing month on month every single month since we started, um, which shows that there is an interest and there's a growing interest. Um, and so in that, as part of that, I imagine a lot of, a lot of people here, they, a lot of people ask, what are, what are people listening to? What are you guys doing on the show? What is, you know, it's an hour long. What do you guys teach? What do you guys, we're not teaching anything per se. Um, we're talking, we're discussing. Um, and one thing we have not done on the show yet is get into um, listener questions. The nice thing about podcasts is it's a way you can um, dialogue with your listeners as well get information, get questions from them, and then be able to return that. And so that's one thing we'd kind of like to do a little bit um, on air today, because that's something we have not really done um, so much up to this point. Uh, and so what we've done is, what we're gonna do is we sort of picked out just a couple of questions. Um, and so we'll kind of read those off and we'll sort of share a little bit of our thoughts here um, live and we'll kind of go, um, go down the list. I will kick us off here real quick. Um, so this first question, um, we got a little bit while, uh, got a little while back. Um, from Arlene, um, she wrote in, and the question is, is Daiginjo really going out of fashion? And I find this to be a really fascinating question for two reasons, because it means either one, there is information going out into the world that says Daiginjo is going out of fashion, or this person, when they're going out to dine or to drink, for some reason that is being, that is being communicated um, as part of the dining experience. So this question came from somewhere. This is, you know, it's a real question. So I'm just sort of curious. Um, what's people's interpretations of this one? Anybody, quick answer? Well, it says, what is it? The question is, is Daigon Joe really going out of fashion? Well, who are you talking to? <laughs> number one, well, what this says to me is, number one, they know what a Daigon Joe is. So this is a person with knowledge of sake and they know the grades which is a slippery slope yeah. to misinterpretation. Yeah. So what they're saying is, is Daikinjo really going out of fashion? I think what they're saying is because Jinmai Daikinjo is better, yeah. more fashionable. Oh, is that what they're saying? Oh, I see, I see. If it's going out of fashion, is it because Jinmai Daikinjo is in fashion? Oh. Is that the other side of the there's question? There's <laughs> Yeah, how, could, how yeah. can we read this question, right? So it's someone that's got a baseline of knowledge and so I'm thinking, why are they saying that? Is it because mm. they believe another mm. opinion yeah. in terms of what is fashionable? Yeah. Mm. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one here because I, I believe this is a situation where someone has got a little bit of information, but unfortunately I think in, in, there is also a little bit of misinterpretation as well mm. about... Daiganjo and Junmai Daiganjo, and that usually is in the international inter um, interpretation of what Junmai means. It's often translated to be pure rice, mm. which you, if you're offered, would you like the pure rice Daiganjo or the other Daiganjo? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have the, the pure rice pure. one, thanks. You know, so <laughs> it, it's, it's, I think that's perhaps where maybe this question comes from. Uh, maybe another angle to, uh, to offer. Um, I think Daigijo has often been an entry product into the world of, of sake, especially overseas. 
um, because there was this idea that Daginjo was the best. And as the sake culture is, is spreading, we see more and more information about food and sake pairing in particular. And then just other grades are, are coming out, uh, Junmai, Tokubesu Junmai, and others. And so maybe it's not going out of fashion, but maybe we hear less of it in comparison to, um, to other types of, uh, of I understand what you mean. There's lots of ways this question being interpreted. So it's ha it's what I'm trying to understand is what the motivation behind the question so that mm -hmm. I can answer it properly. I, I, I think that there's probably an element of all of these because, again, um, Daiganjo has, has never and should never have been um, um, explained to people as the best quality. Mm. Sure. That's right. where the misconception started Agreed. with, right? Yeah, yeah. So right from the get-go, if that was the way people were taught about sake right from the beginning, then the misconception has been, started, been going for a long time. Um, and those of us who are fortunate enough to know that misconception hear that and go, ooh. But I, I, I think maybe Sebastian is right in terms of people are instead of going, oh, this is the most expensive one, actually mm. going for which is the most delicious sake. Now, I think education has a massive role to play there. I think maybe, you know, in the early days I was guilty of, you know, because it's the easy way to promote sake to people who've maybe had something which wasn't very good, you know. They've maybe had something which is cooking sake or close to something. I'm, that's an exaggeration, but it did happen sometimes in the UK when I was working there. And I think it was, if you want to blow people away with sake, the easiest thing is just to show them a daiginjo. And it's the, it's the easy way to introduce sake to people. But I think now education is growing around the world. We're actually teaching people about the diversity that's out there, giving people the, cho the chance to actually choose themselves. People have different preferences. Not everyone is going to like the alternative to daiginjo. Maybe some people are actually going to prefer the daiginjo right from the get-go, but you don't know that until you actually give those people the opportunity to try these different things. That's not answering the question at all, I know. But I now people, know, people I now have more chances to try different exactly. things. Exactly. And maybe because you've got that education, right, maybe sommeliers out there are actually making better choices when it comes to lining up the sake for their restaurant menu or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they're not just choosing an all daiginjo menu. Which I think, you know, used to happen quite a lot. Well, so in, the, it's in, the, in, the, in the bubble era, definitely. Yeah. You know, there are still restaurants <laughs> in, Gin, in Ginza which only have um, Daiganjo. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that's also, also um, since that time, the quality of sake overall has improved. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So that's before, the brewers would put all of their effort into producing the Daiganjo, but producers are focusing on quality and consistency um, throughout their lineup. Mm and reducing their lineups to have a more slim portfolio, but focused on quality yeah. Um, yeah. rather than high volume quantity. Yeah. So I think that is also a shift. Yeah. And I, I guess the I, I don't the other think it's a case of Daiginjo going out of fashion, actually. Well, this isn't really answering the question, so to speak, but I actually think polishing is going out of fashion. Rice polishing is finally going out of fashion. Or the misconception or the that misconception the higher grade is that the equates to quality. They're not related at all, really. The quality, the, you know, the polishing is just a rule put in place for the grading system, right? That's it. It's not connected to quality whatsoever. And you know what? In a blind tasting, yeah. I would say three times out of four, people will choose an alcohol-added style yeah. because yeah. they are usually a little bit crisper and drier in the finish. But with the label, with showing the labels, four out of four people will choose the Junmai based on the fact that it is a Junmai and the pure rice varietal. Yeah. Yeah. There is definitely a stigma with alcohol added styles. Mm. Yeah. 
We yeah. saw a graph the other day. Uh, Yamada-san showed a graph the other day in an event I was doing, a seminar I was doing, showing that the Junmai curve is clearly, you know, going up yeah, yeah. against all the other grades. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess the other angle to this too is maybe styles Daiginjo or even Junmai Daiginjo in nature. You're getting less styles that are indicative of people's expectations of that product up until now. You're starting to have more variety, more diversity mm -hmm. in Daiginjo, Jumai Daiginjo, things that are yep. not quite yes. overlap. And in IWC, mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot a new styles of yeah. Daiginjo, yeah. Uh, which are interesting. Yeah. And you can see people are wanting to use that um, category to do something yeah. unique. So I think there's so much overlap now that to introduce sake just by the grades alone, it's just not doing it justice anymore. Mm -hmm. you, you have to talk about all the different flavor profiles that you can come across with sake. Mm -hmm. I know that's, a, that's the, definitely the more difficult job when you're trying to you know, educate people about sake. You really need the, the long, time. In the long run. In the long run, but that's more enjoyable. That's more, you know, in, in the long term, that's more enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. So let's go. So we got actually got a couple more questions. Question number two, you wanna do it? Who wants to read question number two? All right, so this question is from Django Unchained on Instagram. Shout out to Django. And he asked, if rice quality is different every year, why don't more sake brewers add vintages to their bottles? Now, we all know who, who wants from, to jump on it? <laughs> from the wine world, I think a lot of practices to showcase what the year's harvest had to offer. So they're very proud about putting their vintages. But in the sake world, I think at least traditionally, it's always been you know, the mastery is always kind of been in being able to produce consistency year in and year out, um, regardless of the quality or the quantity of rice they had. So uh, we are, however, seeing a bit of a shift in the industry where more brewers are playing with the idea of BY or vintage on their labels. What do you guys have to say about this? Well, who, who wants we, crack we did a whole episode on Tiwa, right? We did. And there was, in, in, yeah. And, you know, in a slight sense, Tiwa kind of, you know, it comes into this, um, or not the word necessarily, but the concept. So the whole idea is that when it comes to wine, it's that year's grapes. It's, it's the, the weather, right? It's the things that you can't control that gave you a better quality of harvest that makes that year unique. And that's going to make whatever wine that comes out of those grapes unique. And you can charge a higher price for that. You could do the same thing with sake, but the problem here, as Marie's already touched upon it, the, the ratio between production and the raw ingredients is the complete flip when it comes to sake. So with wine, it's almost like 80% grapes, if you like, and then the rest is maybe production. But with sake, it's the complete flip. So it's like 80% production. What does that mean? Well, it means that no matter what quality of harvest the brewer gets, he's got the skills or she's got the skills to turn it the other way. You know, if you've got a bad harvest, fine, they'll deal with it. They'll just adapt parts of the production to deal with the rice that they've got. And that's why it kind of makes the whole idea of vintage a little bit meaningless in a way, right? But is it meaningless? <laughs> well, I think definitely there are some brewers that don't brew to a um, consistent style every year. There is... Intentionally. Intentionally, mm. there is a yearly var variation in the way that they produce sake. They produce sake in harmony with what nature has um, bestowed on them. So if that year the rice is particularly dry mm. and porous, then they will create craft a sake to, I suppose, to um, 
pay homage to that. <laughs> and um, that's funny because every time brewers yeah. get together after you know the season has started, the first thing they, they talk, talk about, about is how oh, the, the rice, rice is dry. Yeah, the rice the is rice really is dry soft. this year. <laughs> So I know. they do care about different they really, really do. Well, at Craft Cycle Week, the backyard, it's always, you know, <laughs> because we've got people from Kyushu to um, Hokkaido at the event. The rice talk. And, and it's, a, it's a real regional rice talk session. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, our, our Yohimangoku was, was really rice? soft this year. Da, da, da. And mm. so it is obviously a point of um, interest and discussion. There are some brewers that very much want to highlight that seasonal variation mm. or um, annual variation. There are some that don't, so I think it should really be left up to the brewer in terms of their their brewing philosophy their and what they yeah. wish, how they wish to produce their sake year to year. Yeah, it's a challenge. It's it's not a universal theme no. necessarily, but it's a but it's a, it's a significant one. Yeah, it comes down to the brewer's aim these yeah. days. I think more than anything. Yeah. Absolutely. Can we get a shochu question in here? We, we need a, we need a shochu question. Let's get one. We need a shochu question. Yeah. We need a shochu question. God, I mean, one of the big shochu questions I get all the time is. Why is shochu still no, unknown outside of this country? And it's a, it's a very good question. And a lot of it comes down to just a lack of education. It also has to do with the fact that in most major metropolitan areas outside of Japan, you just can't find it, mm. really. And um, Drinking culture is, is a big it's, one. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's been some hits and misses with in terms of how you position the products internationally. Um, but mostly it just comes down to a lack of exposure to the drinks, a lack of information about the drinks, and uh, figuring out how you can work these drinks into your bar program in many cases. So should shochu have become, shochu and awamori, sorry, we should always include awamori, should they have become popular overseas before? Yeah, it's slow. But having said that, how long has shochu, have shochu and awamori been exported on any scale? The answer is zero years. They have not really been exported on any scale yet. So we're still just getting started. I have to say that shochu is complicated. It's um, a, it is, it's a bit of a rabbit hole, so, yes. So um, yeah. you need like really some time to, uh, to understand what, what the drink is and... Um, mm. How long did it take for sake to take, you know, really catch on in North America? <laughs> okay, so we're talking more than three decades, right? I love the optimism. Because I th and I think one of the problems is the problem is the same as sake. You don't need to know that something's delicious. You just mm. need an opportunity to drink it. To try it. Because yeah. instinctively, you know if you enjoy something or you don't. Yeah. You don't need to know about it. When I was setting out drinking wine, I didn't need to know if I liked it or not. Yeah. I just and, drank it. And bad experiences can put you off trying Absolutely. it. That's Absolutely. You, we share something in common there, right? So you've yeah. got shochu being marketed something else in a lot of countries, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when we've experienced the same thing with sake, so yeah. it's a yeah. Chris is referring to the fact that soju, Korean soju and Japanese shochu are often thought to be the same thing in the American market. Thank you, Christopher. No worries. We need to get that in here. Oh, we don't. We're a little bit behind schedule. Um, we were going to do kind of a quick sort of flash topic discussion, but I think we're a little bit out of time because what's more, uh, we'll, we'll save that for another day. We picked a nice meeting, meaty topic, which we'll, which we'll get into later, and we'll save that for a future episode of Sake on Air so that you can all tune in. Um, but um, what I would like to do now is for just kind of the next 10 minutes or so, it just sort of open up the floor to questions um, from the audience. Um, if you have any questions, whether it's things, I, everybody who is here I know is involved in the communication, sales, 
um, experience of sake or shochu and related beverage in some form or another, and you're probably all experiencing different things in different facets of your of your own industry. Um, so whether it's something about the beverages specifically, or the show, or the space, or, some, or a question for us. Uh, a specific uh, host or anything. If anybody has any questions, um, I would love to open up the floor and, and chat with everybody here. If you need another drink, raise your hand. We can bring you another drink if that helps. Hi, this is Frank back in the studio. Unfortunately, the mic that we handed to the audience member wasn't actually hooked up to our soundboard, and so it's really hard to hear the question that was asked. Justin does a good job summarizing it a few minutes later. So just for the record, it was asked by Time Out Tokyo's Aiden McFarland, about soju and shochu and the perceptions of both drinks abroad. Back to the show. First, bring that man a drink. <laughs> and this is kind of what you were just referring to a little bit, Christopher, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I got a little bit distracted by the fact that I was that you were holding a mic that wasn't necessarily plugged in, but I think we got it anyway. Yeah. So we're can, can so yeah, we real just quick, so yeah, summarize so, it for yeah, me? Yeah, so real quick. So the question is, you know, uh, is... Korean soju with its growing infiltration and sort of popularity, has that in any shape or form sort of stepped on the toes of shochu developing a presence um, that people are aware of internationally? Does that sum it up pretty good? Perfect. That is primary, primarily an issue in North America at this point. Um, you can go to Europe and, and most people don't put shochu and soju in the same camp necessarily. And it comes down to a labeling law in California state is the main culprit from back in the 90s. Uh, the soft license law in California was amended so that 24% soju, anything below 24%, could be sold on a soft license. Meaning, you know, a yakiniku place with a beer and wine license could still have a spirit. They could still have soju on that license, which was a boon for a lot of places in California. Now, a lot of shochu makers were like, ooh, chansu. So they said they bottled, rather than 25%, they bottled at 24. They wrote soju on the label, on the front, and they started to, they were able to sell shochu in California state to sushi restaurants and to izakaya. And that was 20 years of misinforming the public about about shochu. So everybody in California thinks shochu and soju are the same thing. Obviously, that's not great. Now, soju has done, made, you know, obviously the, the number of Korean people in America greatly exceeds the number of Japanese nationals that are in the United States. So there's just automatically a, a much larger expat market to start. Um, is that going to hinder shochu's progress in the future? In America, it's going to make it harder because we're not starting from zero, we're starting from negative territory in America. But around the world, it shouldn't be as much of an issue. It is just, as Rebecca said, it's more of a get people to drink it and then get them to drink it again. Hopefully they don't have any bad experiences. If they're bad experiences, then I hope it's related to shochu, which it won't be, right? And not <laughs> something else that they're conflating with shochu. But it is, that is certainly a challenge heading mm -hmm. forward for the, for the industry. Yeah, we just got a question from the audience. Hold on. It's from, I'm, I'm trying to read this off a very small picture on a, on a camera here. From Daniel. It says, would you drink shochu the same way as any other spirit? Is there a preference a, in how you would drink shochu one. based upon the base ingredient? We're putting you on stage tonight, sir. Yeah. In, in case you didn't notice, if anything shochu related comes 
into this channel, it goes directly into <laughs> Everybody's that. just like, I'm like well, yeah. <laughs> um, to Daniel, right? Um, thank yes. you for your question, Daniel. And uh, the answer is, yeah. Basically, to all of those questions, yeah. um, there's not a pretentious bone in shochu's body, so you kind of drink it the way you like it. And if that means, like, for instance, before I was pouring ogon uh, anno, and my preferred way to drink that is with sparkling water, because I, I think the, the kind of the fruit, almost tannin-like uh, red sweet potato notes in that play really well with bubbles. And if it's me drinking a regular sweet potato shochu, then I'm going to drink it with hot water because I'm old school like that. And that's the traditional way to do it. But these days, city folk like us here, up here in Tokyo, we like to drink it on the rocks. And uh, people in, in the, in, around the world are gonna start mixing it into cocktails. So yes, there's basically a million different ways to do it. Um, you can take a dried fish and stick it upright in your, in your oyuari imojochu as well for some extra umami. You can talk me into that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a lovely image, but it tastes divine. Yeah. Let's keep it clean. Yeah. <laughs> fair, enough. fair enough, fair enough. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Um, anybody else? Any other questions for everybody? Whether about the Nihongo demo dai jobu sio. Ano, tektoni, ano, tabun hen na koto yuchou kamo shinai. Yeah, sure. Hi, my name's um, Richard. I'm just a sake zukishi. Just love Perfect. sake. And, uh, Perfect. Um, my question, it's, it's not a question, but I just want to know your thoughts about the new regulation the government just announced about uh, the, um, you know, the sake, making a there? new sake brewery. That's a yeah. um, what do you think that will um, effect on the sake, you know, sake yeah. market and also not just in Japan, but around the world? Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar, so a couple things. So that topic we were going to discuss, that was it. <laughs> that was the um, meaty topic. Um, yeah, we, we, we thought we'd yeah, get something meaty and politically divisive because um, we, like we like to stir things up here. Um, one, that was it. Um, two, so for those who aren't familiar, um, basically um, the National Tax Agency just announced that. So for those who aren't familiar, it's really hard to get a license to produce sake on any sort of scale that is reasonable for any sort of startup. Um, it's, it's almost to the point where it's nearly, it's not impossible, but close to, which is why you've had no new introductions really into the market at all, ever. <laughs> um, and they just announced a couple days ago that as of April of next year, they are going to allow new operations doing small levels of craft production as long as it is an export only product export only okay um so before we dig into this just a couple caveats this is a really oh. controversial no, so, but real quick but it's, it's important we preface this though so one <laughs> we, one thing we have to preface it with is it, we actually we don't know all the details of what this That's is going to look like yet um so when it says an export only you know a brewery, does that mean there's no means of selling it nationally? Mm. We don't know yet. Is there, it's a lot of the details, the minor details are not mm. going to come out yet and they're not going to come out probably until close to, um, or at least openly until close to that time. So any remarks we have are based on the limited amount of information that we have. Um, a big question I had was reverse importing. 
can it be done? So you, you make, make the sake for the export market, but then it finds its way back into Japan via reverse importing. I can't imagine why anybody would want to buy that product <laughs> oh. or invest in it there, oh. but it's... <laughs> um, succinctly, anybody, anybody's thoughts, fe- feelings? Uh, 20 words or less. 20 words or less. I'll give you 25. I'll give you a tweet. Well, I've got fairly strong opinions on this already, yeah. but I yeah. have to be really careful because we don't know all the information. Yeah. My, so my knee jerk, my reflex reaction is, what the what? Yes. Yeah. Um, who does this help? Because export is not the silver bullet. We are seeing media stories about the, you know, the doubling of export volume um, each year, which is, which is great news. But that is only still only, what, 3 to 4% of total production. Export is not the silver bullet to improving um, the stagnation in the sake industry. Restructuring is. If we're going to open up licenses to create more sake overseas, we need to do due diligence on what's happening in those markets overseas. Are the customers receiving the sake in good condition? Are the logistics and distribution networks serving sake properly? Is sake being temperature controlled? Are there storage and handling conditions in place to make sure the end consumer is receiving the sake in the condition that the brewer imagined? Do we have all of that infrastructure in place? Do we have all those checks and balances in place? And are the markets strong enough to receive increased imports? Is the demand there? Is the demand there? I think we need to do due diligence on this before we start handing out licenses. This is export is not the silver bullet. No. Rebuilding the infrastructure of the sake industry for the modern um, for a modern generation is what we need to do. The, f- the first thing I thought when I saw that was, what the hell about the domestic market? Yeah. That was the biggest question in my mind. Why exclude the domestic market? I just can't understand the logic behind that. I mean, I understand the demand isn't here to you know, allow more breweries to open. And I ha- also understand you have to protect the existing business that's there, right? If you start increasing the number of suppliers, you can have competition. The demand is already quite low. That's not good for the industry either. But I don't see why you can't do both. You can't have a brewery that does domestic and export. Why and, they have to? And we're talking about licenses and, and volumes. We're not talking about what is sorely missing in the industry, which is marketing and branding. Yeah, 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 yeah. People only know sake. They don't know individual breweries' names no. or the sake that they produce. So they can't rebuy. They yeah. can't repurchase what they like because they can't read the labels. Yeah. There are so many fundamental issues which need to be addressed and can't be... You know, we can't um, solve this, you know, falling uh, taxation dollars um, gathered from the sales of sake by doing this, like, injection of increased exports. We need to fix the the core (laughs) of the industry from from the foundations up. One final point, just if I may. My biggest concern is that you're going to have an influx of brands from Japan no one's going to know which one the hell is the one, like a proper brewery with a big history, right? And the thing we always hark on about on this show is the story, right? The, st- the wonderful stories that these breweries have. You're going to be undercutting that with these brands that have got like 10 years of history or something or 20 years of history. And how is the customer, g- g- the consumer going to know which one to value? 
Yeah, right? I guess. Yeah, one of my my initial reactions. So the the entire premise is it's your base. You have to sell a super high end product to even make it make any sort of sense. Mm. And so the idea that I could set up a brewery next year and start selling a product at a price point that communicates the level of value that on a on equal par with these producers that have been doing it for 100 years, 200 years, 300, 400 years. The, it's a complete, it's the, the complete, I, I can't create something of that level of value. Mm-hmm. It's not, a, it, sure, I might be able to create, a, make a tasty product, but there's no way I can make something that matches that level of value. And so to set up an operation that is contingent solely upon having an expensive product that has it's just a business. It's just a business, if, you know, if and Saka, it's fine. If Saka business was, is fine. Was just a drink. If yeah. sake was just an alcohol, yeah. then yeah, maybe you could. This yeah. would make sense. But sake is not just a drink. It, yeah. Sake is a culture. Yeah. And yeah. This it, it, it undermines the value of the culture. Promoting sake the is an SKU. Yeah. 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 You can overload the export market with just token brands yeah. that no one knows anything about. No one can tell the difference between them, right? And just to add to like Rebecca's point and to your point earlier, yeah. Chris. Sake is already having a bit of a marketing crisis overseas. Yeah. We were having, you know, we're having difficulties communicating really the the story and the culture behind sake and not just the bottled product. So in in adding on to that, you know, if we go from already struggling to talk about sake that has history, that has heritage, that has quality and culture in Japan for the past several centuries even, how do we go from that and to sell a product that has pretty much a vacuum void of nothing you know it has not to say that um uh, we want to be discouraging of new products and new producers coming into the market absolutely not but the whole band-aid sort of solution to think oh you know we can just sell more products abroad that has had absolutely no substantial history and story in the japanese market i don't see how that's going to help us sell more sake overseas (laughs) I feel like there's a whole program. Yeah, we could we could do a <laughs> whole program. <laughs> yep. I think the general consensus maybe maybe needs to be rethought from the ground up. And, <laughs> and we also need to gather a bit more information. Yep, as well, exactly. I so believe. yeah, this will be time stamped, so you'll know exactly mm-hmm. when this information went out in relation to the situation of things. Um, so with that in mind, but that's thank you for the question, Richard. That yeah, was very can, we, can we not ask very briefly what the gentleman thinks himself? What uh, Richard thinks himself about? This? I would love to, but we all have some drinks to have and some <laughs> things to have as well too. So after this party, we're going to sit down and we'll, we'll hash it out okay. here. We'll get into it. Um, we're happy to do that. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming out this evening. Um, I thank you so much for supporting Sake on Air um, for, through this last year. Um, we have a whole lot of exciting stuff in store. Um, you see, we're here. we've had a lot of different people on the show. We've been a lot of different places. We've done a lot of different recordings. Um, there's some folks here in, in this audience that have been on the show, and we can't thank you enough for being supportive and um, of that um, and of our mission. We're still figuring this out. A year feels like a lot to us. I mean, that's pretty much why we got you in here. We decided it's a year. We need an excuse to have a drink. So we figured if we invited some of our friends, we could do that. But um, we got a lot more we're trying to do and a lot more we're working on. Um, And so um, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to another year plus um, together sharing sake and shochu on air and awamori on air um, with all of you. So thank you very much. And... And that's a wrap. Thanks again for tuning in this week to Sake On Air. If you would like to keep tabs on what it is we're up to and what's happening with the show, please do follow along with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at at Sake On Air. 
And you can always send us questions or comments to questions at sakeonair.com. Or if you visit our contact page on the Sake On Air website, you can send us direct messages via there as well. As mentioned at the top of the show, a review would also be amazing. We've got one more show coming for you before we close out 2019. So please do stick with us for one final kampai before we close out the year. As always, this show was brought to you with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. Production on the show was made possible with the help of Export Japan and Mr. Frank Walter, who is always working on making us sound beautiful. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you again in just a couple weeks.